Well, I invite your attention this morning to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be starting a 13-week Bible study through the book of Philippians uh, the, now till basically the end of July. And uh, John Higgins asked last night, he said, is it going to be 40 weeks? And it's only going to be 13, so you can be uh, grateful for that. But if you're new to our church this morning and you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. And if you want to take that Bible and turn to page 980 in the Pew Bible, 980, uh, if you're not used to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And you are welcome to take that Bible if you do not have one with you and uh, take it home with you as a gift from us because uh, we want you to be in God's Word. Amen? Amen? And that's what we want you to do. And I have my note taking or my timer up here, so I know the time just as you know the time. So we'll keep each other on guard. Philippians chapter 1. You know, I, I read a story recently about a young lady uh, who, just listen to this story. I think you'll be very challenged by it. Uh, the author's name was Art, Art Linkletter, and he told the story about a lady named Wendy Stoker. If we can go ahead and get that picture up on the screen, that would be great. She's 19. She's a freshman at the University of Florida, and she's a young athlete. And recently, she placed third in the state of Iowa, prior to going to the University of Florida, in women's diving. I can't swim, let alone dive, so that's a, that's a miracle in itself. But she worked two hours a day for four years to get to the place in high school where she could feel as though she had accomplished what she needed to do. And the letter, or the article went on to say that she has worked twice as hard now that this is her first year at the University of Florida. She's aiming for the national finals coming up. She carries a full academic load, she's in a sorority, and she's also an accomplished writer. I, if you have spare time, I guess you can challenge her in some things. But one thing that is remarkable about her, and you may notice this by the picture, she actually types 45, minute, 45 words a minute on a typewriter, or a computer typewriter. Do they still have those anymore? <laughs> Not sure. But you know, she does it though with her feet. Did you notice that? Folks, she has no arms. She does all this as a diver, as a swimmer, as a full-load academic person with no arms. Isn't that amazing? I don't even know if I can type 45 words a minute. I can't swim to save my life, and I definitely cannot dive. Amen? And some of you all probably can do all three and more, but it's a neat story to show us that things aren't always as they seem on the surface, are they? Things often are not, as the old saying goes, you don't judge a book by its what? by its cover, because you don't know what's underneath the surface. And I think her story shares that with us today. But whether you are looking at people or churches or websites or families or whatever you have before you, often it is the things that you don't see that have the most impact on your life. You don't know how God is working in their life. Maybe this is why the famous Scottish preacher, his name is Robert Murray McShane, if you ever get to look him up, said this. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Because the things you see on the outside aren't necessarily what God is doing on the inside. This is why, as the next slide will show you, the great biblical example. Do you remember the story from Samuel when King Saul was taken away from the kingdom? Saul had sinned, and God said, Samuel, you are going to raise up a new king from the family of David. And David had many brothers, many strong, able-bodied brothers, and they passed one by one across Samuel, and God said, nope, 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 that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. And finally, in this verse that many of you know, 
God said this. He said to Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that a great thing? Because for some of us, that is a great, great thing. Because we may not be the strongest, we may not be the best looking, but it is the heart before God that matters most. And let's be clear here. Even in a church, looks can be deceiving. Many of you have been to churches that ran like a Six Flags over Jesus, and it was the best experience you ever had in your life. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a holy church. It could be. That doesn't mean it's not. You could be at the small country church where everyone knows your name the moment you walk in. That doesn't mean they're very nearer to Christ than anything else, but they could be. The biggest thing that we have to remember as a church at Tower View Baptist Church is that no matter how many people fill the chairs here, no matter how many people come to our activities, the things that are happening on the inside is what really matters. Church, we have to hang our hat, our mission on what Christ did for us, the full-blooded gospel engagement, you might say. So this morning, what I want to look at as we start this book of Philippians are three signs of a healthy church, three signs of a healthy church. And my goal today is to look at a church that at one time was really spiritually messed up, quite honestly, was a wreck. It was a wreck. And we want to answer some questions this morning. What are the key factors that makes a church healthy? Not just on the outside of what you see, and that's a good part of it, but what happens on the inside? How do I, as a member or a regular attender of Tower View Baptist Church, help this church become a healthy church? Those are the questions we're going to pursue today. You see, because a gospel-centered church that wants to know, grow, share, and serve is the type of church that is like a banquet feast. Anything else is like going to a, a restaurant that has been shut down and condemned by the health department because it has things running around in your food that shouldn't be running around in your food. Friends, we want to be the church that is the feast laid before you, the thing that is laid before you, because a strong and healthy church that has a strong and healthy culture focused on Jesus Christ, focused on what he has done on the cross, makes the visitor feel right at home. Do you ever think about that? And a healthy church turns seekers into saints, consumers into into contributors, members into ministers, and an audience into activists. And so we are going to look at three signs of a healthy church from two verses today as we open up. We're going to see how a healthy church understands its true identity in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that a healthy church includes leaders of good rapport and example. And finally, a healthy church walks in grace and in peace. And this book of Philippians, how many of you have ever studied the book of Philippians before, verse by verse, or a few hands go up? Let me just give you some back history before we read our text today. The history of the church is this. The history of the church is that it's in a very rich area called Philippi. It's a very major trade organization and area that was there. And we're not going to turn there, but if you want to read this later, you can go back to Acts chapter 16 in your Bible and read this a little later on. There were three key people that made up this church to start off. There was a woman named Lydia. She was the fashionista of the day. She had houses in Thyatira and Philippi. She had a lot of money coming her way. And when Paul went to visit her, she found found that he was a guy that spoke a little bit different religion than she was used to. They were praying to God as Jews, but Paul engaged her with the gospel, and she got saved. So you have a rich woman, Lydia. And then you have another person, a slave girl who was demonically possessed. And yes, Satan is very real, and he's very really working today. 
And you want to know that back in that day, this particular demon that was in the slave girl kept saying, these men are here to tell you about salvation. These men are here to tell you about salvation. The demon was mocking what Paul was telling those people. And what did Paul do? Paul got mad. Paul got a little irked about everything this demon was saying. It's true, but it was just in a, a sarcastic tone. Cast out the demon. The slave girl becomes a Christian. And the last one and the most familiar person of the church of Philippi, you're probably already familiar with, the Philippian jailer. Many of you know the story when Paul and Silas were arrested, they were thrown in the jail, and around midnight, they weren't asleep. Do you remember what they were doing? They were singing, weren't they? They were singing hymns. And that really annoyed the jailer. The jailer was your, your ex-GI, Green Beret. He's the type of guy that his work was, his identity was wrapped up in his work, his self. He's the guy that would go home, take a drink, watch the game, go to bed, and go to work the next day. He's your 12-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week kind of guy. And the jail breaks open. God sends an earthquake. And all of a sudden, the jailer decides, I'm going to die anyway. The people are going to escape. But Paul shares the gospel with him. And do you remember what happens to his life? Complete 180. So this church starts out with three very different people. A rich lady, a former slave girl, and what else? An ex-GI, if you will. We'll call him Blue Collar Bob is how I kind of named him, if you want to go that far. And as they start this church, this isn't a church that they're all the same race, they're different races, they're not the same socioeconomic class, they all make different amounts of money, but what's the one thing they have in common? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes this letter, it's 10 to 15 years later, around 60 to 63 AD, and he writes this letter, and can you imagine what he's thinking to them? I wonder if that slave girl's married now. Does he have any kids? Does she have any kids? What about Lydia? Are they still meeting in her house? for church, because they did that. We know that from history. What about blue-collar Bob? Has he calmed down a bit and they didn't go postal on some people? Did he calm down? These are the questions that they want to answer, and that's where we're headed. This whole book of Philippians, we're going to entitle Gospel Joy. This book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and having joy as a church together. That's where we're headed. I don't know if you're Lydia. If you are, I need, I need some extra money to pay off some bills, so come find me. I'm just kidding. But if you're, I don't know which one of those you are, but at Tower View Baptist Church, we want to make sure that no matter if you are a blue-collar worker or you work downtown in a high-rise building, that we are centered on one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's go before the Lord as we stand. And this is something you're going to have to get used to. I love to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read a mighty two verses this morning. And uh, you can uh, go from there. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Paul says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, to all grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we are grateful to know you, to be a part of your word, Father. Lord, I thank you for the beginnings of Philippi because, Father, if we're honest here this morning, and we need to be honest here this morning, that's how each of us came to know Christ. We were not what we should have been, but the gospel found us, and it allowed us to be who you wanted us to be. Father, I pray as we go forward with Tower View, Father, for years, for 50 years to 100 years from now, that this church will continue with the rich history of the past and the present to be a gospel-centered church. 
Father, let our church reach the neighborhood not by anything except your power that, that Josh read about, the power of the gospel. Father, thank you. It's like dynamite. It's dunamis. It blows things apart because, Father, you turn us inside out and upside down. Thank you so much, Lord. We pray for wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you very much. You know, this morning, it is very interesting that as Paul uh, opens up, he does so, I don't know if you notice this greeting, but he, he does so without his usual greeting. You know, many of you, when you see a letter, you just want to get to the meat of the letter. You get a, a bill in the mail. You just want to see, well, what bill am I going to pay? Well, we're going to stop a little slower today and see why Paul does certain things here with this. But the first thing I want you to see is that a healthy church, a healthy church understands its true identity and mission. You see, Paul usually says the Apostle Paul. He usually identifies himself as the Apostle. An Apostle was just simply someone who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, saw the living Christ come back from the dead. wasn't for everyone. There are many churches today that have Apostle this, Apostle that. Don't believe them. Apostle is for those who saw Jesus Christ in the flesh 2,000 years ago. But do you notice what he says here? He doesn't do that. He jumps right in and he says, Paul and Timothy. Well, that's interesting. That's the only time in all his letters that Paul identifies himself with someone else. Why is that important? Well, I think it's important because if we're going to understand what a a healthy church is, we have to understand that a healthy church has older people in the faith disciple and get to know younger people in the faith. See, Timothy was a young man. Timothy was probably around my age, early 30s. And you can, you can make all the, old young, all the young age jokes you want about me, and I'll shoot it right back at you, just as an aside. But you have to know that Paul had invested in Timothy. Paul gave his life to Timothy. They ministered together. They lived together. They worked making tents together. They did all this together. Why? Because Paul loved Timothy. For all we know about Timothy, he had no, he had no father in the picture, we know from his, uh, his other writings, Paul's other writings to Timothy, that he had a grandmother, Eunice, and a grandmother, uh, Lois, I got those mixed, that basically raised him up in the faith. And Paul comes along and preaches, and, and Timothy turns into a disciple. But one thing that we know is that Paul is much more advanced in years than Timothy is. But Paul sees benefit and value in giving Timothy his time because he had a concern for young people. And Paul makes this point. I think it's the first thing we need to see. The Bible knows no Christianity without discipleship. The Bible knows no Christianity without discipleship. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because you want to be pleasing to God. If you're a Christian, you are not a Christian because you did anything to save yourself, but because God in His grace saved you. Amen? But I think we've neglected at times to train up the young people. You say, well, isn't that what it wants us for? Yes, that's a part of it. But older member, can I ask you, have you had a younger couple over to your house for dinner maybe? Have you tried to reach out to them and say, you know, we may not have a perfect marriage if they're married, but we would love to have you come over. Or is there a single in this congregation that you know of, older couple in the church, that you could get to know, that you could give life experience to pray with them, I can tell you, my wife had this experience in college, that when someone who's older invests in someone who's younger, doesn't it just change your world? Has anyone ever done that for you before, where they've invested in you and taken that time, and especially in things of Christianity? 
You see, we've neglected to train up that next generation. Wasn't that what we paid the youth guy to do, the the cool youth guy? Well, sort of. But folks, it's a church-wide responsibility. Simply paying a youth guy isn't enough. Younger kids, younger generations, simply liking Jesus on Facebook and talking about him on Twitter and taking Snapchats of him does not make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. What makes you a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you have poured your life into someone because you have been poured into by the grace of God. Because we came to God with nothing and we have only everything to give. We can't separate that from what we have here. But Paul makes it very clear. He's not coming with his apostolic authority. He's coming with a partnership, Paul and Timothy. So healthy church, I think part of it, and that mission and identity is they raise up young people. Second thing I think you see is this. Did you notice how he identifies himself in the verse? He identifies himself as a slave or a servant of Christ. Look at your Bible if you have it open. How many of you have the word servant in there? And it's okay if you do. Does anyone have the word slave in their Bible by chance? A few hands go up. Josh is much more well-versed in this, but my understanding of the Greek is this is the word uh, doulos, which literally means a slave. When we think of a servant, we think of someone who's just paid and can go back and forth. Now, I'm a closet Downton Abbey fan. If you all know, does anyone watch Downton Abbey on PBS? Two hands go up. Some of you know what this is. It's a, it's a good show. But in there, those servants can go from one house to the next, and they can get hired and fired just as they please. But a slave is bought. A slave is purchased. A slave has no rights whatsoever. And Paul calls himself and Timothy himself a slave of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means, first off, that slavery is a wonderful thing. Ooh, be careful, Darren. Slavery is a wonderful thing spiritually if you're a slave to the perfect master. Folks, if you are a Christian, you have been bought with a price. You have been bought with an identity that is not your own. You have been bought with something that you didn't bring to the table, and that is your identity. Paul does not identify himself in some highfalutin, stick your nose up in the air way. He identifies himself that every Christian should identify themselves with. Who is Paul? He's a slave of Jesus Christ. We say, aren't we free in Christ? Yes, you are. But you're not free to sin. You're free to serve the master, freely to serve the master. Slaves had no rights. They had nothing that could do that for them. But one thing they had in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a healthy church understands that. When I go up to you and ask, well, what, tell me about yourself. Who are you? You'll probably say, well, I do this job. Or I'm a father. Or I'm a mother. Great things. But friends, the greatest identity church that we can have is what Spurgeon said. He said, is Jesus Christ precious to you? Then serve him with your best. Give him your all and have everything sought after his glory. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, he said, if I were still trying to please people or men, I would not be a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. See, we cannot need approval and also serve Christ. Can I ask you this morning? When you serve in this church, are you more worried about what people think about you or are you more worried about the Heavenly Father whose eyes are on you? You know, and that is the biggest thing. But I think there's also something here that we see. If you go on in the verse, it says, he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ or servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. 
You know, I uh, got to study in Mexico about 10 years ago. If you've ever been down to Mexico, it's a very highly Catholic area. Uh, I was in Guadalajara in the oldest temple in Central America, built in the 1500s. And what we used to do as a church, we used to go out and hand out gospel tracts to people as they walked by. And I kid you not, as many of you know, Catholics believe that if you pray enough prayers to the dead saints, mummified bodies, people who live great lives, then somehow, some way, you'll get years knocked off your life in purgatory later on. And this is not the word that Paul is using. We do not believe in mummified bodies that save us. If you are a Christian here today, you are a saint in the Lord. If you are a Christian here today, you have all the rights, all the privileges, all the benefits of knowing the living God. Friends, we don't have to pray to dead people because we serve a living God. Amen? And friends, one thing I want you to hear very clearly. A saint is someone who's set apart. Someone who is, truly understands their identity and truly understands their mission. Well, what is the mission? The mission is to serve, honor, and spread the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not possible for someone to say, I used to be a believer. I used to be a believer. If you are a Christian, you didn't become a Christian because you prayed a prayer one time in your life. You're not a Christian because you suddenly walked an aisle, although God may have miraculously saved you. You are a Christian here today if you're a Christian because God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit and his absolute control, turned your heart inside out and upside down. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we love our Catholic friends, but you pray for them. There are people even now in Rome who are walking on their knees like I saw in Mexico, kissing the ground leading up to the caskets, hoping that God will hear their prayer. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Did you notice that phrase? He, said, he didn't say in Buddha. You can't be in Buddha. Buddhists would think that's an offense. A Muslim will say, you can't be in Muhammad. That's, no, that's, that, you can't do that. Christianity is the only religion where we can stand up and say, you are either in or you are either out. And friends, you can't be like Switzerland. Love Switzerland, they have good cheese. But one thing I'll say is this, you cannot walk that fence post. You have to be either for Christ or against Christ. And that is the truth. And what Paul says a healthy church understands is you understand your identity is in Christ. You understand you are here to serve. You understand you are here to raise up that next generation. You know, I heard a story about a family, and I'll uh, put this picture up, and maybe this is your family. Maybe your family has one of these devices, and every meal, they get together, and it's just like talking to a phone. Anyone like that? Amen? If you go to a restaurant, you look around, that's how most people do it today. So put your phones up and talk to your family. A guy wrote to an editor about two months ago in the Houston Chronicle, and he, he was upset that the electricity had been knocked out in one of those gulf storms down there. Uh, TV was gone, computers gone, surround sound. He's a coffee guy too. And his Keurig, if you're into Keurigs, was also knocked out. So he had no way to do anything. So he said he sat down next to his wife and they began a conversation. And he said this, this is in the Houston Chronicle. He said, we talked for nearly an hour before the power came back on. She actually seems like a very nice person, but I'm not really sure I want to talk to her again. So (laughs) you fill in the blank with that one, husbands. You know, you can be in close proximity. You can even sit in the same pew or row with someone, but really have no idea what's going on in their life. Friends, if we're going to be a church that's connected, we have to remember that a church understands who they are and where they're going. 
What are some practical ways of that? Let me give you some examples. A church is growing in this knowledge has people who are going to serve and share Jesus Christ. Maybe someone said, man, I shared at, at, at Dollar General. I heard that story this morning from one of your deacons. Or maybe there's an older member who has a fresh sense of evangelism who says, why don't we have so-and-so over for dinner? They're new to the church. Maybe we can share with them. Maybe a younger member shows up to a funeral of an older member and says, I didn't know this person, but I want to be there to pray and support that family. Maybe there's informal gatherings in the church that aren't scheduled on the calendar where people say, you know, I would really like to do this because I want to get to know these people better. And a church is growing and knows the identity. There's sacrificial giving. There's husbands who say, honey, what are several things I can do to make you feel more loved? Or vice versa in that conversation. And there's wives submitting to their husbands. Sweetheart, what are some things I can do to make your life easier? Friends, a church that's healthy, knows its identity. Can I ask you this morning, would you be willing to stand up and say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ when they ask you who you are? That may be awkward when you go to the office or the the shop and tell that to someone, but in your heart of hearts, are you walking with Christ? Is our church walking with Christ? That's the first point. Second point is this. A church that is healthy not only knows their mission and identity, but a church that's healthy also has leaders who lead by example. Now, this is a very easy thing for a leader to do, right? Get up here and preach about leadership because I'm the leader, so you will submit to me. No, that's not where we're headed. Let me tell you this statement first off. Whatever the church's leaders are, inevitably, the church will become. Whatever the church's leaders are, inevitably, the church will become. If you have a pastor that doesn't preach the word of God, eventually that church is going to die. Eventually. What are you there to talk about? They're talking about the royals? Well, that's great, but what happens when they lose? And they lost last night. So what are you going to talk about? (laughs) Friends, eventually the leaders are what they come in. But if you notice that phrase at the end of verse 1, he not only explains the mission and identity, but he also says there are overseers or bishops or, or pastor elder teachers and deacons. There's a lot of ways you can take that word. So what is he talking about? The overseers are the pastors, elders, teachers, dash, 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 and then the deacons. He makes a distinction that's both encouraging to the Philippians and exalting the Philippians to have the right leadership style. Friends, we do not believe as a Christian church that it is a CEO-run church. We do not run the church like the businesses that most of you all work at. We run the church like the Bible says to run the church because you know what happens in a business? Eventually, business is closed. We have a gospel that goes to every end of the earth and takes every part of every person and changes them from the inside out. If this is a business transaction this morning, then we're in the wrong place. Friends, we are here to share the living God. Amen? So what do deacons do? Let's start there. Again, I would have you read Acts 6, and I'll just highlight three things. Your deacons here, can I just say a word about your deacons? You have amazing deacons. Really, you do. You do. Don, I'm going to pick on you. Don, is that you can clap for him. That's great. We're going to be highlighting, Judy's going to be highlighting in the office a little article on our grounds team and our our, uh, property committee. But these guys go out and mow this nine nine acres. Is that right, Don? Nine or so acre lot. You don't even know they're out there until you hear the mower. These are guys that do things all the time behind the scenes. John, Brian, uh, Richard, Lorne, who else am I missing here? Uh, Steve, last but certainly not least. um, And someone else I'm missing through the, Pete. Yes, Pete, thank you. Uh, You get up here, you forget names easily. But according to Acts 6, your deacons are supposed to do at least three things. 
They're supposed to care for the physical needs of the church. Your deacons do that well. According to Acts 6, deacons are supposed to bring unity to the body of Christ. Your deacons pray for you. You may not know this. Every uh, morning, a Sunday morning at 8.30, they come in there and they pray. And they pray at home. Because they want this church not to be disunified, but to be unified. Your deacons do a great service. And they also do support of the ministry. They do many things that in, in, in my time, in Josh's time, we just don't have time for, quite frankly. They serve in so many ways. Friends, thank God for your deacons. Will you pray for your deacons this week? Will you continue to pray if you're praying for them? They do an amazing job here. I'm so grateful for those men. But what about the elders? We believe in pastor, elder, teachers. Elder is kind of a buzzword today. If you're into Josh, I know you know this, but a lot of churches, elder is the new rage. But in the Bible, it's always been the rage. The word here is in the plural. The word here is in the plural. It doesn't tell us how many elders, pastor, elder, teachers there should be, but it just says they're to be there. What is their duty? Their duty is primarily to teach the word of God. If you go to our website, towerofukc.com, I put up a blog about the four Ps we're going to do. We're going to preach. We're going to pray, we're going to disciple, we're going to be patient, and Dave, we're going to do potlucks, amen. But one thing, that's right, but one thing that 1 Timothy 3 tells us about elders, pretty much all the characteristics of a pastor, elder, teacher are the same as what you would have, but the difference is we're called to teach. Teach humbly, teach straightforwardly, but teach the Word of God. Friends, if you ever hear anything I say that contradicts the Word of God, run away. I don't care if you've been a member here for 55 years. You run away. If the word of God is not taught in this place, you run away as fast as you can run away. If you hobble, you get on a boat, I don't care. You just get out of Dodge because that is not where you need to be. But what are four things that you need to have towards your leaders in this church and we need to have towards you? First off is this. You need to have a heartfelt trust towards one another. Isn't that the case? This is why the church should trust, respect, and honor and obey the leadership and vice versa. Because if we do something, we want you to know about it. We have a business meeting tonight at 5, and as a member of the church, if you're able to come, I would encourage you to come during that time. That's your time to hear about the church, pray about the church, and serve with the church. What's another thing that should happen between the church and its leadership? I think there's godliness that should happen. The pastors and the deacons should be blameless. Not perfect. Catch that. It, Deb, that wasn't in the job description when I applied. It was a perfect pastor. You don't, certainly don't have one. But what are we talking about? We're talking about leaders that you pray for, that above everything, we are above board in how we act towards you in public and what we do in private. Number three is this. I think leadership, according to this verse, and we learn from the whole scripture, should have sincere carefulness. Pastors and deacons should understand the church not, doesn't belong to them. It belongs ultimately to God. Amen? And we will give an account for our leadership one day. And last is this. Leaders and congregations should have beneficial results. It's a humble recognition that even if we cross all our T's and dot all our I's, that it is God himself that gives the growth. Friends, I'm type A to the end. I love organization. I love flow charts. I love all those types of things. But at the end of the day, what does 1 Corinthians say? Paul watered. Apollos did some more work. But who made it grow? God did. That's right. And it reminds me of this another story I heard. I pulled these out here. Go ahead to the next slide. It's about a sheriff's office in Florida. 
Mike, you might find this story very interesting. $1,500 rug they wanted to get for their office, but it was the typo found around the world. And if you look at the screen, you'll probably tell what it is. For several months, no one noticed this mistake. Instead of in God we trust, if you look up there, it says in dog, D-O-G, wolf, wolf, we trust. Go look it up. This is an exact thing right from Google that had this happen. They spent $1,500 on a rug that a mistake that the person said was autocorrect on their computer. It's a sad thing. I imagine that person didn't have a job for very long. You pray for that person. But in reality, guys, we've all been guilty of the same thing, haven't we? Maybe we spelled it out a little bit differently, but the effect was the same. We've substituted something else for what should be in that person's place. And when it comes to leadership in the church, the best thing we can do is not just find someone to fill the spot, but does their life fit the pattern of what the Bible talks about as leaders? As we pray for our next music and youth person to come in or persons to come in, you pray for our personnel team. They're already working hard to get that next step. We have an ad going out this week for the worship person. You pray for them that that person will be godly in everything he does. Because good leaders don't just stand up and say, follow me, I'm a visionary. Follow me, I'm a great leader. Good leaders, according to the Bible, are servants and slaves because they understand their identity and their mission is to serve Jesus Christ. Will you pray for your leaders this week? Thursday is National Day of Prayer. Pray for your president. Pray for your vice president. Pray for the leaders of this country to know and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So where does this leave us? A healthy church walks and knows the mission and their identity. And secondly, they have good leaders who've been raised up in the Lord. The last point is this in verse 2. A healthy church walks in grace and in peace. In grace and in peace. Look at verse 2 again. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace, to, grace and peace was a very common greeting back in the day. We find the same greeting in Revelation, First and Second Peter, the pastoral letters. But a Christian should understand what these words mean. This is a Jewish shalom and a Christian greeting, grace. Grace was a Greek greeting. Grace meant that you have been freed from everything. Shalom is a peaceful meaning. If you go to Israel, you often hear the word shalom. It simply means peace. But theologically, we understand there's something going on here. Grace, the mercy of God, is how we come to have peace with God and each other. Grace is how we come to have peace with God and each other. If you're not a Christian here today, this church is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to briefly run down with you. You know, we understand that every single person, red, yellow, black, and white, as the old hymn says, they are all precious in his sight. God made us all in his image. We've been made to know him. You were not made with a blank slate to make your own decisions. You were not even made good. Adam was created good, but he fell. He sinned. And as a result of that, even the most cute, cuddly, and comfortable baby is a sinner in need of saving grace. We did what God wants us to do rather than what he has us to do. We call that sin. Not because God wants, God wants us in relationship with him. But friends, we have messed that up very badly. And God deserves to punish us for our sin. Why? Not because he has to, but because he is good. 
And that leaves us in a fix because outside of God's goodness, we deserve his just wrath and punishment. That's what Christianity says is the problem with the world. It's not because they were raised in a bad environment. It's not because they came from a certain side of the tracks. It's not their background. It is that they are at the very core a sinner. And folks, we are born into sin. But God in his great mercy did not leave us there. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. He dwelt among us, or as the message says, he, he moved into the neighborhood. He lived a perfect life. He lived in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And that there, on the cross, he took God's punishment for you and for me, called the propitiation. Every ounce of God's wrath that should have fallen on us fell on him. Why did God do that? Because we deserve it? Whew, not quite. Go read Ephesians chapter 2 if you want some good lunchtime meal, man. It talks about how evil and depraved we are. But friends, not only did he die, but he rose again on the third day. We celebrate, can you believe it's been a month since Easter? It's been a month ago today since Easter. Where has the time gone? But we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every time we come together. I'm going to say a phrase. I want you to say it back with me. Say, you all may know this. I'll say, he is risen. I want you to say, he is risen indeed. He is risen? He's risen indeed. Friends, we believe that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he has abolished death forever. And he calls everyone now to repent of our sins and believe in Christ and have faith in him. If you're not a Christian here today, I invite you to find myself, Josh, a deacon, Sunday school teacher. We want to talk to you about that. That's the greatest news that you can ever know. But what we understand about it is this. When we talk about walking in grace and peace as a healthy church, we understand that this is the foundation for how we forgive one another in Jesus Christ. Friends, you're going to go through times in a church life where someone's going to irk you. Someone's going to rub you the wrong way. Someone's going to say something, do something, look at you funny, uh, make fun of your favorite sports team. If you're a KU fan, I'll definitely make fun of your favorite sports team. And all God's people said, amen. That's right. But isn't it, it's very true. But folks, isn't it true that in the church, at some point, you may have been burned? You may have been burned. Someone, you know, I grew up in a church where literally, and they'll probably hear this online, but there was a fight when I grew up about the color of the carpet. Wait, literally, you hear these stories, you think they don't happen. I lived in the church when I was a teenager that someone left the church over the color of the carpet in the fellowship hall. Are you kidding me? Friends, we believe in each other because the foundation of our lives is based on Jesus Christ, that he forgave us. We walk in grace, not only to Christ vertically, but horizontally to one another. The basis for everything we do is that we want to both define and delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have something in your life today, maybe there's someone you need to go to and ask forgiveness from. Maybe there's someone you, you need to go to and say, you know, this happened, I forgive you. I don't know where it's at. But if you find a pastor or a preacher that doesn't stand on this gospel of Jesus Christ, run away. You guys are going to get your exercise at some point. But I pray that you don't because I pray the word of God is taught every Sunday that we're here. We as a congregation delight in the gospel in our sermons and the songs that we sing. Josh doesn't just go on a website and say, what are the four most popular songs? Josh goes and thinks about these things, prays about these things. I got to meet with Mark Hinkle. I don't know where Mark's at. He's probably around here. I'm just missing him somewhere. 
Mark is going to be excited to take over, and his aim is to exalt Jesus Christ, just like Josh has tried to do, and your praise team does. Well, let me end with this. Many of you who uh, are World War II, uh, were around during World War II or know of World War II, there's a story about a Japanese man named Hiro Onada. Hiro Onada. Hiro Onada was an investigator, uh, a reporter of sorts. He was an uh, information guy for the Japanese during World War II. He was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang, and he was sent there in 1944. Well, after about a year or so, if you know your history, Truman, Harry S. Truman and Independence uh, dropped the bombs. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what happened. But one thing that happened is this man did not give up the war. After the war was done, him and three of his buddies stayed hidden in the wilderness of the Philippines for 29 years. Has anyone ever heard this story before? Some of you have heard this story. They dropped him leaflets that said the war's over. And like any good soldier would, in a sense, he said, no, 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 that's just propaganda. Finally, the only way he would leave the island is a, a Japanese teenager, 30 years later, came and said, I will find your commanding officer. And they went back to Japan, found his commanding officer. They flew him into that island, and he relieved him of his duty. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have fought the Japanese. I'm not saying there weren't things we needed to do. We needed to do those things. But one thing that this story should communicate to us is we can be at war with God or with others and not lay down our arms. We can fight even though the messages are telling us not to. We can do things that we shouldn't do even though everything else is saying the war is over. We can be like him and hide it away from forgiveness with God, forgiveness with each other. We can hide away from those things. But friends, if we're going to be a healthy church, we have got to remember that we walk in grace and we walk in peace. The next time someone does something that really rubs you the wrong way, have you prayed about how you'll respond? Have I prayed about how I will respond? When we have our business meeting tonight, I pray that we walk in grace and in peace. Why? Because of three signs of a healthy church. Paul lays it out there, guys. He says he's Paul and Timothy. He understands his identity. That's where we're headed. Next week, we talk about the partnership in the gospel, one of Josh and I's favorite passages. It talks about the partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we are all in this together. But can I ask you today, are you praying for the ministry of Tower View Baptist Church? Are you praying that this word would not just be a thing, oh, that was a good sermon? Are you praying that our church is built around every facet from the busy hands, where's Betty? Betty, I always, I love our Tuesday group with busy hands, uh, getting to know the ladies. I love Awana, love the nursery. Every facet of our church, will you pray this week that we will be founded on the word of God? And we are, Tower View, we are. But even more so, as we go deeper and wider with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that would be our lives. Last night, I want to give kudos to, to the deacons, John especially, John Higgins and, and Steve, had about 20 men, I, I think that's a fair estimate, 18, 20 men last night, who got around the, the tables and talked about what it means to be open and communicative with our families and our wives. What it means to not be judgmental. Ladies, you are doing that on June 5th. You're going to have a meeting where you can talk and pray with one another. Join those groups. If you're not in a Sunday school class or a small group, talk to one of us. I'm still learning the classes. I'll, but get involved. Tyreview, this is what we're here to do. We are here because God has given us the gospel and what a joyous thing it is. 
If you have no motivation on Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock when your job's halfway through the hump day week, that camel commercial, and you do those things, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ died for your soul. If you're having trouble loving your wife, or wife, if you're having trouble loving your husband, Jesus Christ died for your soul. If your boss at work is teaching you the wrong things, and man, you just can't get along with him or her, Jesus Christ died for your soul. If you're doing work that no one sees you, Jesus Christ died for my soul. What an amazing thing the gospel is. Amen? Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, I thank you this, this morning that you are a gracious and good God. Lord, I know that if we, we could camp out for weeks, literally, even in the first two verses, and know, Lord, the truth of, of everything that you have. But Lord, I thank you most off that you are a gracious God. And Father, I thank you that you have touched lives in here. Lord, but I pray as we start a new chapter of Tower View, not because I'm here, Lord, anyone who's called of you can fill a pulpit. But Father, you have called me here to lead this congregation. You called these deacons. You called everyone here today to be a part of this church for one way, shape, or form. Father, speak to our lives. Give us wisdom about how we can serve. Maybe it's rocking a baby in the nursery. Maybe it's listening to verses at Awana. Maybe it's helping to mow the lawn. Maybe, I don't know. But Father, in everything, may we remember who we are. We're your slaves, not slaves that are under a bad master, but slaves that are under the greatest master ever who gave his life for us. Father, thank you that we have leaders here. May we continue to grow in leadership, Father, according to your honor and glory. Father, and may we personally and corporately as a church walk in grace and walk in peace. For Father, that's how we walk with you if we know Christ. Father, thank you for the gospel. It truly is the A to Z of everything we do and back again. Thank you so much. And Father, we lift this up today in Jesus' name. Amen.